Good evening to you all. Um, I'm Christine Chinkin, and I'm Professor of International Law here at the LSE. I know lots of you. Um, I'm currently also Acting Director of the Centre for the Study of Human Rights, also located here in the LSE. So I'm delighted to welcome you all this evening. You've braved the weather. You've braved what seems to be horrific traffic in London today, despite the fact the tube strike is apparently over. Um, but especially I'm delighted to welcome you because we have a very special event tonight. It's the sort of first public and a sort of open uh, event of the Laboratory for Advanced Research on Global Economy. Um, so the lab, uh, for short, it's rather a long title to say every time, is an innovative and interdisciplinary research enterprise based in the Centre for the Study of Human Rights, and it's the centre that is hosting tonight's event. And the lab was launched back last September. It's been working since then under the outstanding leadership and directorship of Dr. Margot Salomon, who's from both the law department and the centre, and so is one of my uh, colleagues, in fact. Um, we have a very full programme. We've got some great speakers. So without any more ado, I'll hand you over to Margot, who will tell you a bit more about the lab, who will introduce the speakers and to chair tonight's event, which is entitled Human Rights, Globalisation and How to Save the World. We're very modest in the centre. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so thank you, Margot. Okay, well, thank you very much, uh, Christine, for opening this event, and a good evening to everyone here. Thank you very much uh, for coming out. Welcome uh, to this lab, to this lab event. So, you've heard, you've heard the lab was launched uh, at the beginning of this academic uh, year, and I was contemplating not merely what it is we'd want to uh, do with this exciting and indeed uh, important uh, initiative, but what it is we'd want to know. So as someone who's established a, a laboratory on the global economy at a human rights uh, center, I wanted to know, first and foremost, where to look if we're going to try uh, and fix the world, if we're going to try to reorient uh, its focus and its functionings, to be productive, uh, not just for the many, uh, or not just for the few, rather, and while uh, honoring the planet at the same time, which is in any case uh, only on loan uh, to us. So I, I thought I'd invite some very clever and experienced people to tell us what they thought uh, about this question, what they thought about where we might put our energies if we're going to try uh, to save the world. What should preoccupy people concerned with the socioeconomic state of the world today? and its attendant human costs. So should we look to uh, regions or to a group of states, emerging economies, uh, BRICS, MINTS, Asia, MINTS being, as you may know, Mexico, Indonesia, Nigeria, and Turkey. So this approach invites many questions. On the one hand, we might celebrate an economy by including it in one of these 
uh, one of these groups. Uh, but at the same time, that country uh, sanctions the use of force. This is the case with Russia at the moment. Or we can take Nigeria. Just this week, Nigeria was uh, promoted as the biggest African economy, surpassing South Africa. Uh, but also, it's a place with rising inequality. Some regions in Nigeria have 60% poverty levels. It's well um, in a worse place in South Africa on the Human uh, Development Index. Maybe we should look at institutions or a set of institutions. Should they be new institutions? Should they be old institutions? Should they be reformed institutions? Should global institutions better cross-fertilize their mandates? So at present, the so-called soft discipline of human rights is dealt with uh, largely within the United Nations. And the hard stuff of international economic law, policy, and practice is best dealt with, it's said, outside of the UN, away from human rights, many states and others would argue. So I'd be really interested to hear, not least uh, from one of our speakers, about the UN, about the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights and its plans to embed human rights in the economic sphere and how, in practice, this might uh, take shape. But what if it isn't a region or a state uh, or an institution or set of institutions? What if it isn't a place that we should focus on if we want to fix the world, but instead a doctrine, an idea, an ideology, maybe market primacy, maybe commodification, maybe accumulation, maybe growth. So the lab was established to create a dynamic space for both research uh, and engagement on a range of issues that really culminate in our conversation tonight, a range of issues from uh, the practical uh, to the conceptual, and significantly, as Christine mentioned, across disciplines, an overtly cross-disciplinary conversation, as our panelists tonight uh, certainly reflect. So what we'll do at this lab, and I won't give you too much detail because I want to reserve the time for our speakers, is explore a range of questions that we understand to preoccupy all sorts of people, whether scholars or practitioners or public officials. Questions about justice, human rights, fairness, and the global economy, its processes and its outcomes, and its winners and the many who are not, in fact, its winners. So we have an excellent panel uh, of speakers to begin this exploration with us tonight. And I'm delighted they've come to London uh, to be with us here. I've asked the speakers to take the floor for about 15 minutes uh, each, and then I'll give them each an opportunity to respond to one another's lectures before we open the floor to questions and thoughts uh, from, from the audience. Uh, so, I'll, so I'll begin by introducing all three of them, and then I'll hand over the floor. These are necessarily truncated uh, biographies, since all of them have done enormous amount of work, but I do want to give you a, a flavor of what they've done in their contribution. We have with us uh, Professor Julio Fandez. Julio is an international economic law professor at Warwick University, and Julio specializes in law and development. He's written extensively on issues around law uh, and democracy, legal and judicial reform, and significantly he's evaluated a range of legal reform projects for the World Bank, for DFID, for the Inter-American uh, 
uh, Development uh, Bank, among many others. He's the uh, uh, co-editor-in-chief of the Hague Journal uh, on the Rule of Law and editor of a book series, Law, Development, and Globalization, uh, with Routledge. So we're delighted to have Julio with us uh, tonight. We also have Dr. Asuncion Lara St. Clair with us. She's a philosopher and a sociologist. She's the research director at the International Center for Climate and Environmental Research in Oslo. Um, significantly, she's the lead author of the IPCC Working Group 2 uh, report. Um, she's also president of the International Development Ethics Association, and she's published widely, of course, on climate change, but also on critical poverty study, on development ethics, uh, on knowledge issues around knowledge production. Uh, I'm happy to say also that uh, Dr. St. Clair is a member of the laboratory's sounding board, our so-called sounding board, our advisory board. And we have with us also, I'm delighted to say, Craig McIver, who's come here from Geneva. And Craig is currently chief of the Development, Economic, and Social Issues Branch, the Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights. He's a lawyer. He's a specialist in international human rights law. Uh, he's been with the UN uh, working on human rights issues since 1992 in Geneva, uh, in New York, as elsewhere, the occupied Palestinian territories, Afghanistan, Darfur. He's been on mission in, in every region of the world and uh, too many countries to mention. He also, quite significantly, um, was the secretariat for the OHCHR, or for the UN, uh, at the World Conference on Human Rights, the seminal World Conference on Human Rights in Vienna in 1993, and has attended many of those over the last uh, two decades, including quite recently in 2012, the Conference on Sustainable Development on behalf of the OHCHR. So I think you'll agree we have an outstanding uh, cast to uh, discuss and hear from tonight. You'll know uh, that this is being recorded, uh, so I ask, please, that you turn off your phones if you haven't already done so. Um, there's a Twitter hashtag, I'm told, for anybody who does that kind of thing. Feel free. Um, the event will end at 8 o'clock, and there's a reception to which you're all invited. But before we get to the drinks, let's hear from our speakers. I'm delighted to give Julio the floor. Thank you very much. Thank you, Margot. Thank you very much for inviting me, and uh, very good luck with your project, which is a very important project. I like the title of Saving the World. Uh, where I come from, we would never dare use that title, but I think that at the LSE you can afford to do this, uh, because you can do it. You can. Now, uh, I, the title of my presentation is Can Law Save the World? I will get to human rights at the very end, um, because my argument will be that you cannot really promote human rights unless you really have an understanding of how the law works in different parts of the world. Um, so can law save the world? There are obviously two possible answers. One is yes, because law is good, and law enables people to make claims, uh, enables people to enforce their rights, and more important than anything, enables markets to work. And there's another answer, which is absolutely no. It's nonsense. This is pure idealism. It's naive. Law is a tool of domination. 
reflects the interests of the powerful and condones all the injustices and social inequalities in different parts of the world. These two views, as you know, reflect the long-standing academic uh, uh, and interminable debate amongst uh, your, your, your professors, which is whether, whether law is autonomous or, or self-propelling, uh, or whether law is the product of something else. It's something that comes out with a wash. You know, you wash your clothes and then suddenly law comes out. Uh, it is the product of social forces. It's the product of something else. Law is not never there. It's a bit like a virus. It's, uh, we know it's important. We know it hurts, but we don't kind of find exactly where it hurts. But despite the intellectual disagreement and the uncertainty, uh, practitioners have been much more practical, and they have actually decided that law will save the world, and they have launched uh, a number, not a number, innumerable initiatives to help the world have better law, to give the world more law. And what is law supposed to achieve? The same things. You know, markets supposed to strengthen democracy. It's supposed to contribute to good governance. And, of course, in international law, law is supposed to um, provide uh, the mechanism through which we can uh, create rules and practices and codes and so forth to make globalization work successful and profitable. Um, So everybody promotes legal reform. And everybody promotes law. It's not just the World Bank and the nasty IMF. It's actually the WTO, the the, the United Nations, uh, OECD countries, uh, Washington, London. uh, NGOs promote law. Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, social movements, environmentalists. Everybody's concerned with law. Everybody wants more law. So as a consequence, we are inundated with laws. I mean, we're drowning in laws. Everybody talks about laws. So it's actually a great time to be a lawyer uh, or to be a law student. But the question still remains, does it make a difference? Or is it just more of the same? Are we just identifying a, a, a nice little new mantra to persuade the world that we're doing something for the poor and that we're doing something to make globalization more fairer and at the same time effective. Well, obviously I have to be negative to be able to make my point, but there in my paper I've got a few points that are very positive, but I don't have time to make the points, so excuse me. Uh, there, have, there have been some very important changes, and for example, the, the, the constitution, constitutionalism has now become an, an, a very important and very dynamic force. Uh, judicial independence in many countries is much stronger. Uh, legal pluralism is, is, is now recognized even by the USAID. Uh, there's much more awareness, awareness that policing is, has to be uh, carried out in, 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 in more humane ways, etc. And more important than that, p- people have a, a greater awareness about rights. But of course there are problems. Uh, it is not perfect and all you have to do, I have a, an even longer list of problems, but all you have to do is think about any country in the third world and, and, and ask, do people trust the law? Do people trust judges? Do people trust their presidents? The answer is more likely most people don't. Do people trust politicians? 
even here, they don't seem to be very popular. So imagine how popular they are in countries where uh, societies are much more uh, um, unstable. So there is a question here about, you know, what is it that is happening? I mean, one of the, I, I just wanted to sort of give an example about legal empowerment, because legal empowerment is one of the things that, that is actually has been transformed into the, uh, the big new idea. And uh, the DFID has commissioned a study, uh, a friend of mine to study, and this friend of mine brings me up and says, you know, have you got any ideas about legal empowerment? You know, is it working? And... I don't really know how they do legal empowerment because uh, from London it's very difficult to do it. Uh, hiring consultants to empower the poor in Botswana or in Bolivia is not a very clever idea. Uh, but it, actually, when you look at what happens in some countries, there are some really interesting cases of, of empowerment. In Peru, for example, uh, peasants in remote areas have basically decided to look after their own property because the government doesn't and they've created a whole mechanism which has been replicated in many other parts of Peru and Latin America. So that's, in a sense, they have been empowered. And of course, shortly after they've done that, the government wants to come back and take, take over. The same thing in, in South Africa. Uh, street traders organized to protect themselves against the police. In, um, in, in, in Ethiopia, uh, groups of people organize themselves and create a credit union to be able to, to protect each other when, when they are sick and so forth. So there's a lot of interesting initiatives. There's a lot of initiatives from below. Whether these things happen because... All these institutions that I mentioned earlier are promoting law. I don't know. I suspect that that's debatable. I suspect that it's more likely that it would happen anyway because people have to defend themselves. So what is the problem? I mean, the problem in a sense is that I'm, I'm using obviously the concept of law here very, very broadly. And I'm doing this on purpose because I think the problem is that what is being promoted are a whole range of rules, institutions, practices, and so forth, which are very often incoherent, which contradict each other, which are not often enforced with equal force, where there's no hierarchy of which, which, which rule should be enforced in, in, in preference to which other rule. So as a consequence, what you have is a patchwork of wonderful initiatives which create a very incoherent product. And this product is actually, at the receiving end of these products, are states in developing countries that are then accused of not being able to be humane, to be politically stable. To, they are really torn by all these pressures. All these laws are, but some, some, some of the sponsors of these laws, uh, not the Human Rights Commission, but the, the World Bank, does have a lot of power. And, you know, don't forget that uh, bilateral uh, uh, investment agreements and free trade agreements are really very strong documents, very strong political mechanisms that put pressure on governments. So what happens when you have this people in Ethiopia, in Peru, uh, in other countries, taking these initiatives. Do these things amount to anything except nice anecdotes? 
will this lead to Ethiopia developing a social security system? Will this lead to the Peruvian government protecting peasants, etc., etc.? Probably not. And that's really, uh, that's really the problem. How, how can you secure some sustainability for some of the initiatives which are very, very interesting and very good? And my point here is simply that the promoters of law have not really taken into account the, the, the democratic content, within, content and context within which these laws are promoted. Uh, there is an assumption that democratization happened, or, or if it didn't happen, it will never happen, but, but somehow these laws will interact with each other, these rules will interact, and suddenly we will be in good shape. Now, notice, it is, it is true that what's been going on here is that legal rules, some of which are quite strong rules and which are, enfor- are enforced and enforceable, actually contribute to ensure that globalization works. But that's, if that's true, that doesn't necessarily mean that these rules are really strengthening the rule of law in these countries, because it's the, these rules are generated externally, they're incoherent, they're in contradiction, and, 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 and leave the government and leave the citizens of the countries outside. They, they have no say in what these what this, what this rules say. So... When people say, why is it that third world governments are so unreliable? The answer that my dear colleagues, the economists, say, because they are unable to make credible commitments. And, yeah, maybe. However, as you know, in private life, when you get married, you make one credible commitment. And very often people don't even take that seriously. Now, governments in the third world have to make one million credible commitments to uh, the human rights organizations, to the environmentalist organizations, to the IMF, to the World Bank, to the WTO, etc. So therefore, you have these countries with millions of credible commitments and not knowing which one to, uh, to, to actually enforce. And as a consequence, what happens is that the outcome of social conflict is really determined by which institution, external or internal, has more power. That is not the rule of law. So my suggestion to my friends in the human rights community is that they should think a bit more about democracy. They should think about the way democracy weaves into the human rights promotion because you cannot possibly promote human rights effectively unless you have a working legal system. The promotion of human rights through an effective legal system may improve the legal system almost certainly, or may improve the legal system insofar as the people who live in those countries want to improve it. And if they don't want to improve it anymore, well, leave them alone, but at least do it that way. And I think that this is a, uh, a, a much better and more likely to succeed way of, 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 of promoting human rights. But it's as not taking democracy for, for democratization for granted, but always trying to link what you're doing with the democratic process. And, and I, would, I would add that they, 
development practitioners should also try to change some of the rules of the game which are really interfering with the, uh, with the, with the more vulnerable people in developing countries, and particularly in the area of natural resources. But I don't want to get into that. Thank you very much. I'm sure. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm going to use a PowerPoint because I'm going to introduce to our discussion an issue that has a lot of consequences for globalization, for the economy, for human rights, and certainly for the law and for the need for democracy. And that is climate change. So my presentation, and I'm trying to present to you the results of the recently launched IPCC report uh, it's not a, a lecture on climate change, but I'm going to give you quite a lot of data and information from the report to situate human rights and the challenges and the topic of this discussion today as part of this uh, issue. <clears throat> I was author, some of you may know that the IPCC is divided in three main working groups. The first one deals with the natural science basis of the problem. Working group two is on impacts, adaptation, and vulnerability. What is what the impacts does to people and the provisions for the future? And then working group three on mitigation. And I'm going to uh, link our discussion uh, on human rights issues and globalization to both working group two and three, mainly, mainly the working group two, but also working group three in terms of mitigation. Climate change is happening. And it's happening, and the challenges are absolutely serious. What this report does is not one more the science that all of you know. What it does, and it's new, and the IPCC has never done before, is to situate climate change within the social context on what it impacts. So it's more about the things to which climate change impacts than about this science. You have here the outline of the working group, too, and you will notice that it's about all sorts of natural resources and the foundations of life, but there is also a large cluster, very important, on human health, well-being, and security, uh, chapter on human security, on livelihoods and poverty. There is a large discussion on adaptation and the need for adaptation, uh, and then there is a, a, a large volume, set of volumes on uh, regional impacts in various countries. <coughs> Why is this important? If climate change is really happening and the impacts are absolutely serious and consequential, and as the working group three shows, greenhouse emissions continue to grow and we see no sign whatsoever that this is going to stop, we are looking into a medium and longer term planet we have no idea what it's going to look like. A world of four degrees is a world that may lead to massive human rights violations and it's a world that is going to lead to a lot of conflict, and it's going to change and affect the economy and the way in which the global world has to respond to that. So this is of fundamental importance, and again, this is the first science. I think the science finally is situated in this context, and this is the moment to start joining and connecting the dots of discussions that are happening in the development aid work on poverty, on global economy, along with climate change. Climate change is not an environmental problem. It's a development problem. It's caused by a particular form of development that has benefited some countries, 
And those are the countries that are now producing the vast majority of the greenhouse gases and the ones who are more capable to adapt into defend themselves. But the impacts are on those who have not benefited from development, the poor countries, the poorer countries. And you can do the same analysis in terms of groups, not only in terms of countries. This is something that I don't think we can any longer really think about the challenges for human rights and for the global economy without thinking about how to respond to this and what the impacts are doing to people. The report documents thoroughly, with a large increase in literature, that people all over the world are already showing and seeing the impacts of climate change in basic issues such as their direct livelihoods. People are already being affected. You don't need to have a four-degree world if you are a poor person whose life depends directly from natural resources, from rain. If you are a farmer depending on rain-fed agriculture, any change in the patterns of rain is going to affect your way of life. This differential vulnerability is what creates the problems with climate change, right? Whereas for us who might be in advanced economies in London or in a major European capital, these impacts of nature are still very much removed from us. This differential vulnerability is important, and many people have already made very rightly the case that climate change is a violation of multiple human rights, both socioeconomic and liberty rights. We see cases of too much water and too little water. Those are impacts that we already see. The report gives chilling information about the impacts on agriculture and the threats to food security and livelihood security, affecting primarily the poor of the world. As we move into the future, as we move into seeing what happens if this warming continues to change, nature and our relations to nature and the ways in which we depend from nature, what we see is these key risks, and I'm showing this slide, I know it's very thorough, you are uh, able to have it after, all the text is in the report, and I sort of play there with the idea, key risks, key rights. And some of these key risks are chilling, as I said, risk of death, injury, ill health because of low uh, sea level rise in the coastal areas of the world where the vast majority of people live. This vulnerability in the coast is very differential if you are in the Netherlands where they are already investing millions of euros, billions of euros to protect from sea level rise, or if you are in Bangladesh where the sea level rise may affect millions of people who have very little opportunity to actually even move or migrate. Risk of health, systemic risk due to extreme events. And I think, England, uh, you have been exposed to these uh, extreme events. So climate change is not only the long-term change patterns, but it's also these extreme events. Risk of mortality due to the periods of extreme heat. We see predictions about mid-century. That's not that far away for all of you who are young. You will be seeing this of if we don't stop these greenhouse emissions, not being able to work outside because the heat will be impossible to be bare. Risk of loss of rural livelihoods and income due to insufficient access to drinking and irrigation water, etc. These risks are clear. We already live in a world where there is massive appropriation of land for appropriation of resources, and this is only going to increase as the resources are being threatened by these 
increased change, increased warming, and increased temperature. There are two key uh, chapters, three key chapters in this cluster that address directly, not using the literature of human rights, but it shows clearly uh, the issues. One is on human security, which took the issue of migration and conflict as the point of analysis, another on health, and another on uh, livelihoods and poverty. And they document what happens uh, in a situation where there is already existing violations of human rights, where conflict is the way of life. And this, what it does, obviously, is increasing the vulnerability to any other factor. Climate change is a threat multiplier that interacts with whatever is happening, making everything worse. Right? But indirectly, as long as climate change impacts the causes that create the conflict, we may, lead, may see right, strong increases in violence and in conflict uh, towards the second part of the century. The same with migration. Nobody likes to term climate refugees, but migration and displacement are of fundamental importance all over the world for people who even use it as an adaptation strategy. But what we see is that the most poor, the most vulnerable, are precisely the ones who cannot move. So it's not only the migration and the displacement that this may cause, also with territorial problems, like, for example, in the small islands that are sinking and they don't have, they may not have, nor even a country to call for, but also in terms of the people who are not able to move. The report in the chapter of uh, poverty shows the very likelihood, high likelihood, of new, th new poverty traps emerging and the reduction, the efforts on reducing poverty, the efforts of bringing democracy, the efforts of, of uh, bringing development being rolled out. So we might see not only more conflict and more insecurity and more poverty, but also more difficulty in continue doing the work of reducing poverty. So you may see a world where human rights violations may increase and create new forms of violations. This is a triple injustice. It is an injustice, as I said, because if climate change is the result of a particular type of mo model of development, the model of consumerism, high carbon, high energy, that has taken off science industrialization and that has led to the wealth of advanced economies, then those, and this leads to climate change, those who have not benefited from this model of development are the ones who are more vulnerable. And this is already in the world creating a lot of unrest. Impacts are stronger for those who are neither benefit nor contributed to the climate change. And it also, we also see already in the literature, and the social science literature is really coming up very fast, but it's not there yet, that you can document negative effects of mitigation and adaptation strategies on poor and vulnerable groups. For example, red programs, uh, I'm not sure you are familiar with reforestation uh, programs, that may end up displacing more and leading to processes of accumulation by dispossession for using David Harvard's language. Okay? You can see uh, adaptation strategies who are co-opted by those who are in power. So we may see processes in which even actions to uh, defend and protect uh, uh, societies from climate change replicate a system of inequalities, replicate a system of uneven uh, power. However, and this is the other side of the coin, human rights, the law, democracy, those are the tools that we need. The Working Group 3 report on mitigation had a couple of chapters 
that some of the authors were ethicists and some of the authors did work on human rights and climate change. It's a little bit too economistic, but there are some important claims. Here you have some on the slide that are from the Summary for Policymakers, where there is an explicit acknowledgement that issues of equity, justice, and fairness arise both in relationship to adaptation and to mitigation. And also that many areas of climate policymaking involve value judgments and ethical considerations. There is also an instrumental reason why equity, ethics, and normative principles are needed, and that is in the governance, these famous negotiations that nothing happens. It is very clear that developing countries are not going to do anything to reduce greenhouse gases unless the, there is a shifting in the fairness of relationships. So I am an optimist by nature. So putting together human rights violations, conflict, migration, poverty, and human rights with climate change leads to this very overwhelming, catastrophic picture. But we have to be positive, and the positiveness comes in the reports. We are not there yet. We are not in this four-degree world. We know we will get there soon if nothing is done. So there is an opportunity space to act. And the report that I work uh, emphasizes very much that we need to start forgetting about these arenas of climate change is the environment, human rights is a question of governance and law. We need to start working together in order to manage the risk. And in my language and in my world, I will say it's changing the risk into opportunities. There is a self-interest for everybody to address climate change. Advanced countries are listening to poor countries in a way that has never happened before when they are serious about these negotiations. So I think this is the moment where we need to use what we know, what we have learned about democracy, about the liberation, about the law, and about human rights to really make that transition to sustainable, equitable, low-carbon societies all over the world. So the motivation is there. It's not the same motivation of rapid transformation we saw during World War II and the creation of the European welfare states, but I will not be surprised that that rapid change may happen because the other side of the coin is just very ugly and very chilling. So just to conclude, I just want to put here a thought about saving the world, as Margot asked us to use these frameworks, because we don't have time, we don't have 30, 40 years to slowly build some sort of uh, apparatus. We need to use the apparatus that the world already has. As a philosopher, I know human rights are both on the one hand the law, but on the other, a normative, global, accepted set of principles. I will say the only one not accepted, not implemented, not perfectly, not perfectly uh, operationalized, but it is without a doubt the most important normative guiding system that we have. And we need to use it in order to forge this common goal of transformations to sustainable societies while at the same time we correct these inequities. And here is where all societal actors need to play a role. We need not only the NGOs and governments, we need subnational level uh, 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 organisms, we need local level, we need civil society, and we need the private sector 
to really get into the picture, because this transformation also requires rapid technological advance. As impacts increase, human rights can help guide local processes of contestation and response. I heard Julio saying, well, you know, this is not, we don't have it right yet, but at least we have learned a lot, as you mentioned, uh, in these processes. Then is the issue of the role of the law itself in settling many of the claims. And we know that legalization of social life is a trend all over the world, and there is a lot of issues that can be settled in courts in relationship to that. So the day that we make uh, prohibited, not only tax carbon, but also prohibit certain practices, that will be the moment in which we create really the uh, incentives for the change. And last but not least, many of the decisions that need to be made within the next decade, because folks, we have a decade. The change needs to happen and needs to happen very quickly, many of these decisions are not necessarily science-based. I think we know enough about the risk. It's about how we address the risk. But these decisions are about values, about how much something is a risk bear uh, to address or not. And therefore, there is a strong role for democratic processes, for deliberation, for involvement of citizens in making decisions about this risk that affect not only us, uh, our current generation, but also that of our children. Thank you. I don't have a PowerPoint. I wish I did. I told Professor Solomon I'd do a part of my presentation through interpretive dance, but it was just a, it was just a thread. I promise that's, uh, that's not going to, uh, to happen. I, I'm very struck by the first two presentations, I have to say, because they, uh, they fit together very well with what I was thinking about in preparing myself for our, our conversation tonight. Um, because from a human rights perspective, I mean, um, essentially, um, what, what we see from these two presentations is that uh, climate change is a failure to apply the rule of law to the economic sphere. And I'm going to um, uh, try to uh, talk a little bit about uh, why I believe that's the um, uh, why I believe that's the case and why it is that increasingly you have um, sort of arrogant human rights lawyers sticking their hands into economic questions more and more, not least because of the leadership of LSE on building bridges between the various disciplines around these issues. But, but I'm going to suggest that, in fact, this is a product of the very uh, genesis of the modern international human rights movement going all the way back to uh, 1945 or, or 1948, wherever you, um, you draw the line. And then to try to explain a little bit of why it is that the UN Human Rights Program is spending so much time and energy looking at um, human rights in the economic sphere and addressing it as such, uh, I think, belatedly but quite seriously these, um, these days. Now, part of it is because there is a battle raging 
Uh, it's a battle which is raging not just in the conference rooms of, um, uh, of universities, but literally on the streets, a, a battle for the soul of economic policy, a battle for the soul of development. Um, and um, you, you all have enough um, uh, knowledge and television sets to realize that this is basically what's written on the banners of people from Occupy Wall Street to the Arab Spring to, uh, to Santiago to Athens and everywhere in between. Um, what is the economy for? More importantly, perhaps, who is the economy uh, for? Um, and what is the normative framework that helps us to answer that question? And the truth is that international human rights law has had a lot to say about this issue uh, throughout its entire uh, modern existence. So I think the timing of this discussion is actually quite excellent. And as I said, I think the forum is a correct forum for this kind of discussion as well, given LSE's role in, in all of this. And they say that crisis brings opportunity, and the bigger the crisis, uh, the greater the opportunity. So I think we must be awash with opportunity uh, at the moment. Our world in the opening of the 21st century is marked uh, undeniably by staggering levels of deprivation and abuse and inequality, cruelty of every kind, chauvinism, I think, of every kind, and really frightening concentrations of wealth and power that are threatening to render any notion, Julio, of democracy nothing but empty uh, rhetoric. Um, Those are uh, in themselves human rights concerns, and we'll look a little bit about why that is. We also have this period of intersecting global crises, the energy crisis, the climate crisis, um, the the economic crisis, perhaps a security crisis as well, which testify to the very complex, um, interconnected, and I think borderless force of these phenomena. Borderless meaning we need some attention at the level of international law to uh, addressing them. It's a dark scenario. There's no question it is a dark uh, scenario, but it is not one which is unique in our history either. It's really, um, uh, it seems to me, the fruit of some very old, deeply rooted problems. If you look at the first half of the 20th century, here we are in the first half of the 21st century, if you look at the first half of the 20th century, you see that too was marked by massive failures of governance at the national and international level, which manifest themselves in all sorts of very frightening ways. Uh, The colonialist atrocities of the first half of the century, the European genocides throughout the same period, racial segregation in the United States, uh, the outbreak of the First World War in 1914, the Great Depression uh, of 1929. I sound like the Great Depression right now. The rise of fascism in the 1930s, uh, uh, World War II in 1939, the atomic massacres in Hiroshima and uh, Nagasaki, and of course the the birth of uh, both the Nakba and uh, apartheid in 1948. Then, like increasingly now, things like education and health care and housing, water, sanitation, social security, those were not rights to which everyone was entitled without discrimination. They were commodities uh, to be bought and sold uh, by those who were the most privileged and able to, uh, to purchase those, those commodities. And then, like now, security was defined very much through the lens of state security, an archaic notion of security uh, that turned the notion of human security mentioned by Julio on its head, so much so that killings and torture and summary executions and arbitrary arrest and detention, uh, rather than being deemed assaults on security, are sold as measures to protect um, security. And then, like now, the notion of the other, uh, exploited by opportunistic politicians, uh, by a complicit media often, opens the door to racism and bigotry of all kinds, profiling and persecution, and ultimately, uh, then and now, genocide. 
So what happened in the wake of that crisis period, um, the, the uh, up and through World War II, and let's say 1948 is the line that I've drawn here, is that those crises opened the way for new opportunities. And we actually had in 1948 a new global compact that was defined, uh, that redefined, radically redefined, the role of governance at both the national and the international levels. That compact was founded in the language of the United Nations Charter, a binding international treaty, and then articulated with great clarity, really, in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. There's a lot of stuff in there, but it basically uh, comes down to three elements. First, and for the first time, that everyone is born free and equal in dignity and rights, And the role of governance at all levels is to ensure freedom from fear and freedom from want for all people without discrimination. Secondly, those rights include civil, political, economic, social, and cultural rights equally and at par. And third, that everyone is entitled to a social and international order in which all human rights and freedoms can be fully realized, and that therefore those rights must be protected by the rule of law and by the force of law. And each of those principles, of course, was given much more detail through the evolution of international human rights law, the adoption uh, of a number of binding international treaties, uh, largely universal treaties among them, the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. The Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights ratified binding law for the vast majority of member states uh, in the world, 160-plus countries. And this is very important because that post-war legal framework did something uh, quite unprecedented. It imposed positive, affirmative obligations on all governments to take the necessary steps in law and policy and administration uh, with regulation, uh, legislation, by extension in budgeting as well, to give effect to the rights that were guaranteed by um, those instruments. Obligations that apply not just to civil and political rights, but also to economic and social rights. And these obligations included three dimensions, not a laissez-faire notion that the government should just stand back and not mess with people's lives, but three levels of obligation. The duty to protect, which, uh, uh, to respect, which means don't do anything to violate those rights directly. To protect, including to protect people's rights as against violations from third-party actors, including in the private sector, for example, and the duty to fulfill those rights by taking uh, positive action in policies and programs to make sure that uh, those rights are actually delivered on. So, in other words, it is already the case that the state is obliged to extend the rule of law into all sectors, including to extend the rule of law into the economic sphere for the purpose of realizing economic and social rights. And to do that, that necessarily implies a robust and assertive public sector with both the capacity and the authority to take steps to progressively realize these rights, to adopt policy and legislative measures uh, to those ends, and to actively regulate the private sector uh, to protect these rights. So, So to put it simply, the state is obliged under international human rights law to ensure the realization of economic and social rights, and that obligation includes the duty to regulate uh, the private sector uh, for impacts that it may have on these uh, on these rights. And by the way, um, that obligation is not lost by deference to something like the market. That obligation stands. So there is the post-war compact that came out of those crises. International human rights law says that the state shall ensure freedom from fear and freedom from want for all persons without discrimination. 
Now, to be clear, international law does not prescribe a particular form of economy or government with uh, specificity. It doesn't say that government should be capitalist or socialist or communist or green or, uh, or blue, because it's designed for universal applicability, and that choice is supposed to be up to the will of the people, to use the language of international human rights instruments. But whatever the system which is adopted, the burden of accountability for delivering on those rights remains with the state. So critically, under this system, as different from uh, what I said in the introduction, health, education, food, water and sanitation, housing and social security are not to be treated as commodities, but rather as fundamental human rights to which all are entitled without discrimination. Now, if that sounds like it's in contradiction to the dominant economic model that we've seen for the last several decades, uh, you'll know where I'm coming from here. Because for much of the world since the 1980s, an alternative vision of governance has been pursued, one which seeks to transfer control um, uh, of the economy in particular away from the public sector and into the private sector, and generally to reduce uh, public accountability for private sector uh, actors. This, by the way, is an approach which was pursued even by other international institutions, uh, international financial institutions, international trade institutions, and even by parts of the United Nations system. So there's a contradiction already here, a problem of incoherence, I think, that explains why we've arrived where we are. Um, This has been pursued, of course, principally through liberalization, deregulation, privatization, reduction of key functions of the state, again, in direct contradiction to what the new compact was supposed to be uh, promising us, reduction of uh, social expenditures, um, erosion of labor protections, peeling back of domestic protections in order to integrate national economies into global trade and so on. And it's been characterized by an extreme level of deference to something called uh, the market. Now, on the subject of the market, I think with apologies uh, to, uh, to some of the uh, economists in the room who might find this blasphemous, I mean, human rights law doesn't differ uh, in this way. So, so if, you, um, if you look at this thing that's called uh, the, the market, to which the state is so often asked to defer, it is not now and has never been some kind of invisible force that's floating free out in the privosphere or, or something. Rather, in, in national economies and internationally as well, it is simply the product of public laws and regulations and policies, um, institutions and parameters that are set to regulate its conduct, its conduct to decide whether and to what extent its actors are held accountable uh, for their actions and for their impacts on people's human rights. So in large measure, when you pull back the curtain and look at the mythology of the, of the market, what the state is being asked to do really is to defer to a particular group of human beings, uh, often elite, who are close to the centers of policy and power on both sides of the public and private divide. Um, and I, I think it, it, it's safe to say now, at this moment in history, that the results of this neoliberal approach are evident for all to see. There was another period from uh, roughly the 1940s through the end of the 1970s when many governments, like that of the UK, the United States, and others, having learned the lessons of the preceding decades, assertively played their role in directing economic and social outcomes to reduce poverty, to reduce inequality, and to advance the realization of economic and social rights. And, in fact, they saw significant progress in doing so. But starting in the 1980s until today, the shift toward these new neoliberal approaches has systematically dismantled the architecture of progress and nearly erased the gains of those earlier decades. And I think by now everyone knows the costs are real and stark. 
accessibility, affordability, and quality of life essentials are reduced as health care, housing, and education lose their status as rights and again become commodities. Ever greater concentrations of wealth and power corrupt political systems as political and regulatory capture replace democratic decision-making. Inequality grows vertically between income groups, horizontally between social groups like uh, women and minorities uh, on the basis of age, disability, ethnicity, and so on, and, of course, in a globalized economy also between countries. And intentionally retrogressive measures imposed in the name of austerity, uh, even as corporate compensation and military budgets and tax cuts for the rich reach record levels. Now, on this issue of austerity, which our office has been very much uh, engaged with in, uh, in recent years from a human rights perspective, our sense is that really it's built upon two lies or misunderstanding, if I want to be more gentle. One is that governments have the policy space to simply suspend uh, progress on economic and social rights just by declaring that there's an emergency, uh, which is a mistaken reading of the law. And secondly, and I'll try to prove this, that there is no money. Therefore, we have to do this. So, you know, um, in fact, under international human rights law, governments are obliged to protect human rights, including economic and social rights, even in a time of public emergency, and even when that emergency threatens the life of the nation. So for economic and social rights, this means that intentionally retrogressive measures must be an extreme measure of last resort. And the burden is on the government to show that stalling or retrogression uh, is temporary, is necessary, is proportionate, and is non-discriminatory. It's a difficult test, uh, and I don't think any of the governments that have embraced this approach have met that test up until this point. They must show that there are efforts at real mitigation before they move to retrogressive measures, including through tax and tax enforcement, closing tax loopholes, taking cuts elsewhere, international cooperation, stemming corruption, enhancing efficiency, um, investing in uh, social sectors to stimulate growth. And any measures must also respect core minimum uh, standards. Think in terms of a social protection floor. Um, And then there's the second underlying uh, lie of austerity approaches from a perspective of of human rights. It's simply not true that there aren't resources available for advancing uh, economic and social rights. Rather, austerity is a policy choice, a choice to spend the resources elsewhere and often to pass the costs of the current crisis down below, uh, lower on the economic ladder. Let me me offer you some some proof for this uh, maybe provocative statement. Last year, global military expenditures were $1.7 trillion. Average CEO pay of the largest corporations was $12.9 million. That's 380 times the pay of the average U.S. worker, without even mentioning uh, the ratio for garment workers in Bangladesh, for example. The net income last year for the 100 richest billionaires was $240 billion. So for those 100 people, enough to eliminate extreme poverty four times over across the globe. And then there's this, according to the Millennium Project. Total foreign aid since the Second World War has been about $2.7 trillion. In a single year, the money mobilized to bail out the banks in the wake of the financial uh, crisis five years ago was $18 trillion. So $2.7 trillion for a half century of aid globally, $18 trillion in one year to bail out the banks. The failure, to, the failure to address global poverty, inequality, and deprivation is not principally about a lack of resources. It really is about a lack of political will. Or put another way, poverty, inequality, the denial of economic and social rights are policy choices that are consciously made. 
I want to say something before I conclude here about inequality. Uh, many of you will know that at the beginning of this year, Oxfam released a stunning report showing that almost half of the world's wealth is now held by just 1% of the population. And that the wealth of that rich 1% amounts to $110 trillion, or 65 times the total wealth of the entire bottom half of the world population. 65 times the total wealth of the entire bottom half of the world's population. Now, the international human rights framework concerns itself heavily with subjects of non-discrimination, of equality, and also uh, of equity. Discrimination and equality on the basis of race, ethnicity, sex, gender, language, religion, minority, indigenous status, uh, migrant status, and also wealth, called property in international human rights instruments. Um, and it also is concerned about issues of, of equity. Indeed, equity, the fair distribution of uh, costs and benefits, is a central element of the Declaration on the Right to Development and has also been a part of the jurisprudence of the UN Committee on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. So that means that governments are obliged to take measures to advance equality. And international human rights jurisprudence affirms a number of obligations for securing um, uh, equality, including an obligation to ensure equal recognition, enjoyment, and exercise of the full range of human rights, obligations of both conduct and of result, so substantive equality, and a due diligence obligation on the part of states to prevent and secure remedies for discrimination by private actors as well. But there are additional obligations that flow from the fact that gross inequalities also undercut the realization uh, of other human rights. They've shown themselves to be significant factors in undercutting, for example, the democratic rights that are uh, guaranteed by the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights by, as I said, fostering um, political capture, regulatory capture. And they've shown, shown themselves, um, these inequalities, very powerful in undercutting uh, or presenting obstacles to the realization of, econ of economic and social rights uh, because they uh, create obstacles to access to resources and services and so on. So one other um, uh, idea, or maybe two quick ones to share, uh, where this debate uh, continues to rage. And it's this question, what is development? This is a debate that human rights folks lost for the first uh, part of, uh, uh, for the last several decades anyway. Um, this idea that development somehow can be equated with economic growth, uh, or worse, GDP, or better but not much, the MDGs, the Millennium Development Goals. Right? And a human rights approach doesn't embrace that narrow view of development. And I think that we've been vindicated to some degree. Because if you looked at the websites of the main international financial institutions and development agencies internationally, even as the revolution was unfolding in Tunisia and people had taken to the streets, you would have read that Tunisia was being held out as a poster child for a perfect development model. Good indicators of growth. It was delivering on all of the MDGs. It was actually being sold, and I quote, uh, as the development model uh, that has served the country well for the past two decades. It was very focused on growth, and it was very focused on this narrow set of socioeconomic indicators. And yet the people of Tunisia <laughs> took to the streets to say this is not development. 
the inequalities, the police abuse, the lack of economic and social rights uh, as rights, uh, the lack of dignity in this country expressed in human rights terms is not development as we see it. And it's certainly not development as we see it uh, uh, as well. Nor this narrow focus on GDP, uh, which measures the good and the bad and calls all of that um, uh, to account for, uh, for, for growth. And uh, for this crowd, I don't need to unpack that one um, uh, for you. But um, in sum, most of the measures that have been used to help to define development over the course of the last several decades have sort of missed the point. Their data may have correct, been correct for what they were measuring, but it's not what people understood to be development, which, as I said in the beginning here, is really about freedom from fear and freedom from want for old people um, without discrimination. And a new measure of development is now starting to uh, be recognized, including in discussions around the development of the post-2015 um, uh, development uh, agenda, uh, because uh, of the failures of those old approaches, not least the shortcomings of the MDGs, which I think we can talk about in the discussion. The UN has um, uh, articulated the definition of development starting in 1986, which is quite different from that, uh, articulated in the Declaration on the Right to Development that rather talks about development as a comprehensive economic, social, cultural, and political process for the constant improvement and well-being of the entire population and all individuals based on free, active, and meaningful participation, the free distribution of uh, benefits. The last concept, I think, where the battle is being raised is around the question of uh, poverty. And it's important because the way you define a problem will determine in large measure the solutions that you devise to address that problem. And poverty, of course, for a long time measured uh, in terms of income, right? So a dollar a day, dollar fifty a day, uh, defining the phenomenon of, uh, of poverty. Um, and it's interesting because the World Bank uh, spent $10 million in 10 years on a study called Voices of the Poor that some of you will be familiar with, asking the poor themselves about the phenomenon of poverty. And what's remarkable about that is what they heard in that study aligned very nicely with the definition of poverty that's been used in the international human rights system and has been codified as well by the, the Committee on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, that poverty is not just about resources, not just about income, but is a human condition, and I quote, characterized by sustained or chronic deprivation of the resources, capabilities, choices, security, and importantly, power, necessary for an adequate standard of living and other uh, civil, political, economic, social, and cultural rights. Very much what uh, Poor told the World Bank in their own study, that it's about uh, power, it's about discrimination, it's about exclusion uh, and, and marginalization. So we are pursuing uh, an agenda now of pressing to extend human rights into the economic sphere. Um, doing that through promoting uh, so-called human rights-based approaches to development that focus much more on free, active, and meaningful participation, accountability uh, rather than charitable models, accountability um, of duty bearers to rights holders specifically defined, non-discrimination uh, and equality as a part of the development matrix, empowerment, both economic empowerment and um, political empowerment, and then an explicit linkage of development interventions to international human rights norms, standards, and law. It's an attempt to try to answer the who of development and of the economy by saying the 100% or the 99%, depending on how charitable you feel, and that the purpose of the economy is precisely 
And the purpose of governance itself is precisely ensuring freedom from fear and freedom from want for all people uh, without discrimination. That necessarily means that we have to begin more assertively to extend human rights and the rule of law into the economic sphere. I'll stop there. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, an outstanding uh, set of comments from our panelists. I did promise that I would give them the opportunity very briefly to take the floor if they were so inclined before I open it up, and I don't know if they are, but Julio, no? You're happy? I'm happy for, for, for the questions, floor? yeah. yeah Asun, did you want to say, do you have any thoughts or Good idea. Okay, well, they're being generous and... Next time I'm going to I organize an event like this, I'm going to find someone else, ask a colleague to chair, because I'd like to be in the position to uh, comment in future. There were very rich uh, presentations. Well, in that case, I'll open the floor for questions uh, or comments. Please be reasonably brief, and, and please be sure to introduce yourself and any affiliation you might have. The gentleman in the front. Yes, my name is Ray Sheehan. I'm an alumnus of LSE. Um, just on the last presentation, I mean, it's a very powerful presentation, but how, if governments and states have these duties to enforce, who is going to, who's going to ensure this happens? How do you ensure this happens? Where's, where, where are the resources uh, to make sure a state behaves like this? Thank you. Let's take uh, three or four questions at a time. There were some other hands in the same corner, right behind the gentleman, and then in the front, and then we'll move over to the other side. Yeah. Hi, um, I'm a graduate of the MSc Human Rights Program at the Center for the Study of Human Rights, and my question is, it looks like, and recent data is supporting this, that the capitalist system is just causing inequality to grow and grow. And how can we possibly save the world without completely overthrowing capitalism? <laughs> I'm so glad we invited Craig <laughs> to answer that question. Okay. Yes, please, the gentleman in the front. I have no confidence in the Can you powers introduce yourself? Be. I'm sorry. Please introduce yourself. David Evans, philosopher. <laughs> I have no confidence in the powers that be to solve these problems of human rights and, and climate change. I would like... I would like... I suppose people on the panel conceive themselves as not among the rich and powerful... But I think you people are a whole lot more powerful than most of the people in this audience. And consequently, I would like to hear what, what you people on the panel are doing to offer some kind of moral leadership. And that means what you, what, what you do to, to live a low-carbon lifestyle. I want to hear whether you are whether you buy organic food whether you are vegetarian how, do you do you cycle to work i want to hear this kind of thing but whenever i come to these lse public lectures i never hear anything like that i want to know what what you are doing in your personal lives to offer moral leadership okay Good. Personal accounts, when it's being podcasted, we might have to show a little bit of discretion, but thank you for your 
question. Should we take one more and then we'll, one or two more and then we'll come back. Please, the gentleman. My name is Kurum Darugar. Um, I work in City. Uh, just a little louder, please. Yeah, is, um, yeah, thank you. My, my question was that um, there is a model that's been adopted by um, several uh, communities and nations, which is to do with the decentralization of power and giving local communities um, more empowerment. Um, that model um, has shown to alleviate, to some extent, a lot of the issues that um, the panel were discussing, I was slightly surprised that it wasn't really mentioned by by anyone, and I was uh, I was wondering if you could elaborate on that. Shall we start with those questions? Mm -hmm. Okay, Craig, you want to kick off? I see you ready to go, and then we'll go down the road. Sure. Uh, those are great questions. Um, I mean, the first one about, you know, here, here we are, we're saying, you know, all states have the obligation to progressively realize economic, social, and, and cultural rights. And, I mean, I think it's, it's, the, it's the best first question, because there has been for the entire, I mean, in spite of the 160-plus ratifications by governments uh, of all regions of the Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, it's probably the least understood body of international human rights law, even by those with the obligations. You know, international economic, social, and cultural rights uh, don't require the state to make a sandwich for everybody in the country in order to realize the right to food. Right? These are eminently reasonable um, uh, requirements. They talk about progressive realization. They talk about um, taking steps that includes, you know, getting the laws and policies in place, setting benchmarks, monitoring procedures, and so on, so that you see that you're actually um, making prog uh, progress. There are parameters set to the extent of available resources uh, is the language that's used in the Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, which is a pretty high threshold, as it should be, but it's not an unreal, uh, unrealistic um, threshold. It factors in international cooperation, for, particularly for, uh, for developing countries. Uh, the of adoption of, uh, of policies and indicators uh, and so on. It sets core minimum obligations, right? So this idea that these sort of basic standards that are necessary for life, but it doesn't stop there, which I think is, is important as well because it, it requires that progress uh, be made, that there, that there isn't retrogression, as I was uh, mentioning before, which you have to monitor in order to know if that is the case, that your policies and the way you're framing the, your, these economic questions are not discriminatory, you know, if you look at South Africa in aggregate, you see pretty good indicators. The minute you disaggregate by uh, uh, race, uh, to the extent that race exists, but to, um, you, what you find is a, a, essentially a, a rich white country and a poor black country in, in the same place. That, that's not development. That's not the advancement of economic and, uh, and social rights. The other thing about this is that it's happening. I mean, we spent you know, years uh, facilitating debates about whether or not economic and social rights are justiciable like other rights. Can you go to court and claim these rights? And while we're in the middle of facilitating these debates, what was happening in countries around the world was they were being adjudicated. People were bringing claims before courts in all regions. Uh, and uh, so, so that, yeah, even discussing whether or not they can be adjudicated like other rights is kind of a a fun thing to do now, but it doesn't have much meaning because, in fact, on the ground in countries north and south, developed uh, and developing, they are being uh, um, adjudicated. 
Uh, and then the last thing is, you know, is the resource issue. And I think unpacking that is important as well, because it's not like civil and political rights are resource neutral either. You can't realize them without uh, courts and police and prisons and uh, administrations and laws and uh, uh, all of the things that go um, along with uh, that. Go along with that. Uh, so, so I, and, and of course, I made the point here that it, it's, it's not the case that there aren't resources. There are. It's a case of the priorities that are set. So in the end, it becomes a political question uh, as well. Maybe that's a, a good bridge to the, um, uh, on May Day to overthrowing capitalism from the second question uh, um, that, uh, that we had. But I think there's no, there's no doubt now that there's a very open conversation these days about um, – uh, and I think you know, I, we, we, we're talking very much about extending the rule of law into the economic uh, sphere. That's a revolutionary idea for, for some folks um, uh, who view capital uh, uh, differently. I, I, I don't want to sidestep the, the question about the, the powers that be and our own personal responsibilities. I think it's absolutely correct that human rights begin at home. Um, uh, responsible stewardship of the planet begins at home. I think that's true. I don't own a car. I walk to work. I use public transportation. Uh, I can certainly do a lot more. Uh, but I think it's the right question to ask also with regard to, to human rights. I think you know, one of the things that I've learned in the 30-plus years in the international human rights movement is that it's not the case that the good guys and bad guys of human rights are easily identified by where they are. There are uh, and, and those bad guys, some of them are girls, yeah. But, um, uh, and the good ones. Um, you know, I've seen courageous human rights defenders who are part of police agencies, and I've seen some nasty bigots who are part of human rights organizations. So it's, it's the right question to ask, and I think we all have to continue to... Uh, uh, to strive to make sure that we live up to the ideals that we uh, profess. I, I, I would disagree that uh, there's a great deal of power concentrated up here amongst uh, international bureaucrats and academics, but we all have our role to play, and, and you're absolutely right that that should be raised whenever these issues are discussed. Maybe I'll leave the rest. Terrific. Thank you. Listen. Thank you. Let me speak to that. I, uh, and also a comment uh, to, to Craig's presentation. I think that uh, evidently capitalism is the problem, and uh, the problem is not the development of the developing countries, it's the model of development of the advanced economies, and that needs to change because it's leading both to social and to ecological disaster. But the trick is that precisely because of that, we need to work at systems change. We need to change the system. And to answer at the same time your question uh, about personal change, I, I actually changed my job today. I abandoned academia to work with the business sector, trying to build arguments why continuing in this path is going to be economically unfeasible, is going to lead to a stranded assets. In Norway, we have a massive movement against the oil, showing them that investing in oil wells that are going to start giving benefits 30 years down the road is a very bad idea. So we need to work at all these arguments. We need to work with the UN Global Compact and so on to do that. And yes, I, of course, also slowly had built up this consciousness that I also don't want to be traveling all over the world. So I give a lot less talks internationally. I only come to the very good ones. And do a lot more in small environments and in social groups and in churches and so on locally. And I really think we need this change personally as well. Sometimes it's difficult. And of course, you know, when you are a little bit more senior, it's easier to say. Uh, but uh, I think we all need to take this personal responsibility. And I really believe all of us sitting in this room are also privileged 
and capable of doing that. Great. Thank you very much, Hui. Yes, thanks. Um, I wanted to uh, say something about decentralization because uh, it's an important point, um, <clears throat> and I'm sorry that I didn't mention it. Uh, in the sort of history of legal and judicial reform, uh, decentralization has been a big topic. Um, for the World Bank, as far as I understand, their understanding of decentralization, decentralization was used as a means of undermining the power of the state, uh, as a means of uh, of, of, of weakening the central state as a means of, 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 of empowering civil society at the local level on the assumption that if you have a lot of these small groups that are fragmented, you, know, you will not have powerful bureaucrats that will take over. And um, that was the intention. Um, I don't think it worked uh, either way. Um, I think that the question of, of centralization and decentralization is a really complicated political issue, uh, which cannot be willed by people that have good ideas about decentralization. It, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. I mean, you know, in, 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 some, in, some, in some countries, there's really good examples. In most countries, decentralization leads to fragmentation sometimes. Um, but, you know, as I say, it, it's a very important topic, and I think it's what, what's a pity is that it hasn't been uh, further developed beyond that. And it, and it has a bad, it has a bad um, name because of the fact that it was used to undermine the center, which, in fact, it should be the, the other way around. It's a bit like the separation of powers. The separation of powers is not to undermine the state is actually to make the state more powerful by separating the powers. Anyway, um, so that's, that's uh, the, other, the other small point that I want to make is about, um, which came from the questions, uh, the, there's a way of, when law is not obeyed, when law doesn't seem to take hold of people, it, it, Sometimes it is a form of rule. Uh, in, in many Latin American countries with which I'm familiar, uh, where, for example, in, in the cities, uh, where <clears throat> a large proportion of people live in, in complete illegality because no one owns what they, where they live and they steal the, the electricity, they do all kinds of things, they have their own law. Uh, the government or governments are fully aware and they know that by allowing this, uh, let's call it spontaneous uh, way of dealing with their uh, needs, they are actually creating a mechanism through which you can actually survive. I mean, you know, I'm always amazed, and, you know, when I go to big cities like Sao Paulo, for example, uh, I mean, people can say, well, they can't organize the World Cup or whatever. Uh, but, you know, or, organizing such a big city, they must have some talent somewhere. Because imagine if the Swiss in Geneva had the inequalities that exist in Brazil. Geneva wouldn't be so pleasant. 
And Sao Paulo is quite present. So you see, I mean, there's, there are different ways in which law works. And I can't imagine that the Swiss would be as imaginative as the Brazilians are to cope with the problem. Um, on the abolition of capitalism, I, I'd rather not say anything, uh, <laughs> because someone may be listening. Um, <laughs> But I, I think that one, I think the question uh, was who, uh, who's going to do it? And I think that that's a very good question because uh, I, I, I was reading something written by a Harvard economist that said, we have to do this, we do, and of course, you know, if I guess again, if you're from Harvard, you may want to think that you can do it. But, you know, the, the point that I think that both Asuncion and Craig made uh, is actually can I mean the, the, what I what I gather my, my, the lessons that I that I, that I have is that it's not just making globalization a little bit more civilized. It's actually reversing some of the things that have happened because under the existing legal framework, under the existing international legal framework, uh, we are pretty stuck. So therefore, the question is, will the OECD countries reverse this voluntarily, or will there be a major crisis that will force them to reverse it? And of course, climate change could possibly, is possibly one, one, one such crisis, which is terrible, uh, but another such crisis is war even more worse than what the wars that we already have. And I think that's really the problem, is that no one wants to be sort of say, you know, history will determine because that, you know, you don't want to be a determinist, but somehow you say, well, you know, we can't control the movement. Uh, that's why I think the question about how, what do I, what I can do, I don't really feel very powerful when I think of all these things. I feel pretty helpless, but, but I'm going to walk back to my hotel. I won't take a taxi. <laughs> Can we have one short round? We're almost out of time, but there were still other hands, and I'd like to fit in everything I can. So the gentleman there, and Hannah, and the, the young woman here, and then we'll call it a day. We'll hear from our panelists. Thank you. Hi, uh, my name's Pavan. I'm from the LSC. I'm doing a master's in international relations research. Uh, this question is for Craig. Um, so there was two uh, small points you made, one regarding how austerity is inherently a policy choice. And then you referenced twice the concept of political and regulatory capture. I feel like those two claims are in tension um, and maybe deserve a little more unpacking specifically how uh, this kind of conundrum can be resolved. Hi. Uh, my name is Veronica Torres. I'm from Colombia. Used to be a human rights law professor and I'm planning to start PhD studies here in London. Uh, my, my question is more from the South point of view. And um, how do you, I mean, how do you think that if it's in a way in which a, the local government um, can hear people's voice um, or people's desires when they dialogue with the North. I mean, uh, how can we, I mean, do you believe in social movements and to what extent? That's very much. One more question, the woman in, in red. Yeah. 
Thanks. I'm Hannah Clayton. I'm a human rights advisor at the Foreign Office. Um, thanks very much for all of your inputs. Um, I was really interested in the panel's views on the growing um, business and human rights agenda, um, particularly since the Ruggie principles were adopted in 2011. I'm um, interested in your thoughts on um, Ruggie and the whole range of initiatives that have stemmed from Ruggie and their um, role in creating a fairer and more just economy. Are they really a game changer or is it a distraction? Um, can they have any real impact? Act, um, not only in better business as usual, um, but encouraging businesses to make different business decisions, um, which in the long term have a better impact on human rights and climate change. Thanks. Thank you very much. We're almost out of time, but I'd like to hear from everybody, if, if everybody feels like speaking uh, briefly, please, and then we'll, we'll carry on at the reception. Should we go in the same order? Craig, then Asuncion, then Julio. Yeah. I, I mean, very quickly, uh, starting with the last question, um, the business and human rights framework, I, I think uh, what you call the Ruggie principles, the guiding principles on business and human rights uh, that were developed under the, the leadership of John Ruggie, the special representative of the Secretary General, are a game changer in the sense that it's not the usual soft corporate social responsibility model. It actually is an accountability sandwich in many respects. You've got three elements uh, in these guiding principles adopted by the UN, embraced very broadly uh, by the business community, by NGOs, by academics, uh, states, and others. Um, the first one, which is um, uh, the duty to respect uh, human rights or the to duty to protect human rights or the duty of the state to protect human rights that I spoke about as against uh, third parties and so on, against business uh, harms. The duty of business to respect human rights and then the third piece which is remedies. And it's those two sides uh, uh, around this, the, the, the duty to respect of business which are hard accountability elements and that's quite different from the framework as it, uh, as it was before. Whether or not the game will change uh, is to be determined. At the moment what we've got is the biggest international uh, process around business and human rights that's ever existed. We have more than 1,000 participants every year in, uh, in the forum uh, on business and human rights that, uh, uh, that brings in all of the stakeholders to discuss these things. There's more work to be done to ensure that that accountability is, uh, is, is firmly in place. Um, that's what I would say about that. I, I, I'm not sure that I um, necessarily see a tension between saying that austerity is a choice uh, on the one hand and that we have the problem of legislative and regulatory capture on the part of the 1% uh, in, in decision-making on the other. I think those are the ones who are making the choice. Austerity passes the burden down uh, lower uh, on, on the ladder. It's not, it's not those that broke the global economy that paid the price for it. It's everybody else uh, in, in the end, I mean, if you, if you want to reduce it to that. So I think there are two, two sides of the same coin, two sides of the same uh, problem, which is the erosion of our democratic decision-making mechanisms as a result of mass of concentrations, unparalleled historically, concentrations of wealth and power by a very small group of people who then can influence the direction of government, including economic, uh, economic policy. And I think that's a part of the nut that needs to be cracked uh, if, if we're going to resolve um, any of the problems that we talked about tonight. Yeah. Yes, some um, two quick thoughts. I think it's uh, quite interesting to end up uh, both on the end of talking about social movements and then business and human rights. I think both are absolutely needed. It's not only the, the, that the business and human rights emerging agenda is a game changer. That's the pathway also towards sustainability. And all the businesses who will move faster towards that transformations to sustainability while at the same time 
forging a world that is more equitable and more fair. Those are the winners. I have absolutely no doubt about that. It is a hard work. I don't think it's easy, but that is definitely the way, and we need to show the path to get there and the cost of not going there. Uh, at the same time, social movements have been what has moved history. So you need both ends. Uh, social movements are, I think, very important all over the world, and we need to understand better how they can be agents of change to promote that. But I think uh, what, 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 what matters the most is that we, we don't divide the world between you know, the good and the bad and the ugly. That it, it, is, it, is, it is not them and us. We need to work together. But, uh, yeah. Thank you. Julio, can I give you the last word? Uh, uh, I agree. <laughs> but um, I, I like to think about political parties, really, because I'm, I've been trying to think about political parties that have more institutional, uh, more institutional life. Um, <clears throat> I think that basically to make things a little bit more optimistic, because we've been rather bleak this afternoon, uh, I mean, I, I come from Chile, and uh, the, the government there, the new government there, is actually doing things which might be might make a difference in terms of you know other countries looking at it because Chile was the first country under Pinochet to even before Mrs. Thatcher to do all the bad things apart from apart from the violations of human rights and all the all the liberalization and marketization and one of the things that they did was actually to privatize education completely and, uh, and, 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 and introduce a system similar to the one that this government introduced the other day. Uh, and now they're reversing this, and they're having a big discussion about the role of the university and the state and whether university should, and, and whether university should be free. Uh, because it, the economists have a very big argument saying that if, if universities are free, then you're subsidizing the rich. And the, the, the government is actually putting forward a view which is led by, and the Minister of Education is an economist, uh, was, was, was finance minister about four, four years ago, so no one can, can accuse him of being ignorant. He's, he's making the case that it's actually, that's not the case in poor countries. In fact, in poor countries, if it is not uh, free, then it is actually uh, uh, not good policy. Now, they're also reforming the Constitution, and more importantly, they're reforming the tax system. Uh, to get companies to pay taxes, because I mean, you know, in this country we have the problem that you know you you say Google is immoral. Now I don't think Google is immoral. I think what is immoral is actually the rules that allow Google to do that. And yet, you know, you know, the politicians accuse Google. I, I find that you know that's almost just you know confusing the public, and I find that uh, very very damaging for democracy. So I I, I have some hope, but you know, social movements in Latin America are actually uh, emerging on the basis of the climate, the, the question of the environment, and the question of natural resources, because people are suffering that and actually are putting forward uh, a lot of interesting ideas, and with support from other groups, that it, maybe something will happen, but uh, not anytime soon. <laughs> I'm afraid that will have to be the final note, not, uh, not entirely optimistic, but honest and, and rich. Um, I will, of course, thank my speakers in a moment, but I'd like to um, just let you know about future public events on behalf of the Center for the Study of Human Rights, two of them in particular. One, on the 9th of June, we have the UN Special Representative on Children and Armed Conflict here uh, to speak, and we have on the 12th uh, of June um, a special event to host um, uh, uh, an official commemoration uh, uh, to honor the life of Nelson Mandela. That's on the, on the 12th of June, so uh, you're welcome to that. As you know, tonight there'll be 
um, a reception following this. So it leaves me only to thank our speakers, I think not only for their terrific insights uh, and thought um, and for coming here to speak to us, but indeed for, for their enormous effort and the contribution over, over decades for all of them uh, to these issues that I think collectively we recognize to be extremely significant. So please join me in thanking our speakers.